Payments is an industry that has an incredibly wide moat. Throughout my career, I've, I've evolved with payments technology. The world of financial services are you know, changing quite quickly. I always knew I was going to start my own company. Welcome to InCheck with FinTech. Welcome everyone to a new episode of InCheck with FinTech organized by PCN. My name is Rogier Roepen van der Voort and on this show we interview people from the FinTech space to talk about the most exciting companies, hot topics, as well as the latest trends and developments. This week we have a very special guest on the show. Um, it's the editor-in-chief of Money 2020, Sanjeev Kalita. As the world is slowly opening up again, I think we're, all of us are longing to meet people again and go to industry events like uh, Money 2020. And Sanjeev has recently written a report about FinTech 2.0 in which he talks about what is next for FinTech. Today, we will dive, dive into his findings and also get a sneak peek of what to expect from the next Money 2020 in Amsterdam from the 21st to the 23rd of September. Money 2020 is the premier show on the industry calendar where C-level executives, renowned speakers, innovators, and disruptors from across the world drive change in the future of money. In Amsterdam, this September, from the 21st to the 23rd, Money 2020 Europe will facilitate three remarkable days of the right conversations, the right connections, and the right discoveries, which enable individuals and organizations of all sizes to achieve their goals and grow. With the CEOs and founders of fintech giants and rising stars at the heart of the show, Money 2020 Europe has always been the platform for major industry launches and announcements. We at InCheck with FinTech are excited to be there in just a few weeks. We'll be recording live from the event and want to see you there. Sanjeev, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Roger. Uh, really excited to be here and really excited to answer your questions about FinTech 2.0. Great to have you. Yeah, exciting to uh, talk about the paper you wrote. Before we do that, would you mind giving the listeners a bit of an introduction on yourself? Sure, absolutely. Very quickly, I, I started off as a chip designer at Intel, so started off as uh, from the technology side and then worked at a large bank, Citibank, for many years. And then the last 10 years, I've been doing startups. Uh, so worked on a startup that was acquired by Google, worked on Google Wallet, so worked in big tech and, and fintech. And then uh, the last several years, I've been working on Money 2020. So I've seen this industry from many different perspectives. Very exciting. And then indeed, so you wrote a, a paper or you recently published a paper, let's say, which was titled The Building Blocks of Fintech 2.0. How did you decide to uh, start reading or start writing on this topic? Actually, it, it, the, during the about 10 years ago, during the financial crisis or after the financial crisis, a large uh, California VC firm asked me to put together my thoughts about payments. And I put together, uh, you know, five trends and listed three companies in each of the trends. Looking back 10 years, if one had invested $1,000 in each of those 15 companies evenly, you know, so your $1,000 would turn out to be $400,000 today. So over an 84% uh, 10-year compound annual growth rate, nearly doubling your money every 10 years. So first of all, I was surprised, but then also coming out of the pandemic, I was like, okay, you know, we're in a similar point collectively where we've had a chance to reassess and challenge pre previously held beliefs. Also, I, I felt it was like a springboard for the, the new era. That's what really drove me to, you know, take a look at the industry, look at the ecosystem and do so globally and try to put some of my thoughts onto paper. Okay, so, so FinTech 2.0 is basically the next chapter in FinTech. Exactly, exactly. Right, yeah, because in the paper you talk about, or in the reports you talk about FinTech 0.0, 1.0, and 2.0. 
Can you talk us through maybe the, the timings and the characteristics of each in sort? You know, FinTech uh, 0.0, I, I would, that, that timing was around, the, you know, the turn of the century. So the late 90s, the you know, 2000s, and thinking about the dot-com boom and bust, actually. And, and there's a big economic disruption in terms of internet in terms of uh, connectivity, in terms of consumer behaviors with, with, with dot-coms and internet. And then fast forward to about 10 years uh, to the financial crisis. At that point, I think there's a lot of movement into assets like uh, housing and looking at data in different ways you know, sort of a bit of a recognition that the banks might not have been doing as sound a job in some of their due diligence as, as one might have expected. Once again, that, that also caused a collective pause of the industry. Uh, we're coming out of the pandemic. We've seen the last two years of accelerated digitization of financial services, digitization of commerce, digitization of the consumer. Ad- additionally, I think there's a lot more, you know, I'd say a little bit more introspection uh, collectively in terms of what we hope to get out of the era ahead. And, and I think that there, there's going to be uh, several changes from the macroeconomic environment, from the technology perspective, as well as sort of the infrastructure perspective. So basically each kind of chapter, if you will, is marked by a big world event, right? The FinTech 0.0 was dot-com bubble. Uh, FinTech 1.0 was a financial crisis. FinTech 2.0 was the pandemic. Exactly. If you look at those numbers, I mean, I have to report obviously in front of me, but it's astonishing to see the, the, the rise of some of the figures that you mentioned there. So you look here at the internet users, FinTech 0.0, it was only 5.9% of the world population. Today, it's around 64% of the world population. Global e-commerce volume has, I don't even know about how much it has, <laughs> uh, has doubled, but from 61.5 billion in the dot-com bubble to... 3,600 trillion uh, right now. So massive. You know, it's interesting to get all of these numbers in a single place because, uh, you know, for example, internet users might be in one view, uh, e-commerce is in a completely different view, and then even looking at population and so forth. But when you put all of these things together, you know, that, that sort of puts it into the proper perspective. So like FinTech 0.0, you know, the average internet user was likely based in the U.S., potentially a college student or potentially you know, someone who has you know, a lot of money. They're the people that are the most, that, that's the average internet user. Whereas today, the average internet user is likely going to be in Asia, likely going to be working class, likely using their mobile phone to access the internet versus a desktop back then. So it, it's it's a very different world. And it's, uh, I think, really, when, when you think about what it means at the individual level, that's sort of when a lot of this stuff comes to life, I think. Exactly. Yeah. And FinTech, as you talk about in the report as well, is trying to, it's been trying to solve certain problems, right? Can you talk a bit, a bit about maybe the typical problems that FinTech has been solving? And if you have even examples of companies and... You know, for, for example, if we look at something like payments, payments is in, is a sector that I would describe it as that, you know, they, they chase retail. In 0.0, companies like PayPal trying to capitalize on, you know, the shift towards digital uh, commerce. And 1.0 with mobile platforms, you had companies like Square that were enabling uh, mobile payment systems. You know, we're looking at things that are maybe more embedded. You have things, you know, companies like Uber in the West or maybe even Grab, you know, out in Southeast Asia that are attempting to, once again, incorporate that payments into that traditional, you know, into that main retail system. But then, then you get to something like lending. And I would describe lending as something that, you know, chases data, tries to innovate on business models. So for example, you go from something that's more of a bank-based lending system 
And then in 1.0, you get to like some of the P2P lenders like Lending Club to like companies like Affirm and Klarna that are, you know, using digital data to, as, as, a, as a primary springboard to make that lending decision. Yeah, it's, it's, it's yeah, for, to your earlier point about uh, the likes of Uber and Grab, it's non-fintechs basically becoming fintechs, right? It is more embedded, as you say. I, I think it, it's also sort of, you know, I, I'd ask your listeners like to think about how many more how much more stimulus they might have competition for their attention now than they did, you know, even 10 years ago. Like, you know, I, I sort of feel sometimes a bit ADD, you know, when I'm waiting online, I can't just wait in line. I, I pull out my phone and I have to be engaged with stuff. So I, I find that uh, when you're able to incorporate things that were conscious decisions before into unconscious behaviors, please seems out of, bit of the winning formula, at least for, you know, the, the current era. It's a bit of trying to take prior conscious decisions and making them into subconscious behaviors now. And, and, and I think that that's going to be the winning formula right now and, and ahead. It's clear that fintech has had an impact on, his lives, on our lives, whether it's indeed us being more addicted to our phones or whether it's us having better access to uh, money, to uh, credit, stuff like that. It has made an impact in different ways, I guess. Yes. Oh, you identify certain key drivers, um, well, actually across all the uh, fintech eras, uh, if you will. Can you talk uh, us a bit more about that? So you talk, for example, about macro environment, right? The biggest thing with the macro environment is uh, it's a you know, consumer attitudes and behaviors and then regulatory environment. You know, you know, 20 years ago, if there was an upstart, you know, the, the there was the, actually a pretty good argument that the banks were maintaining and protecting the system. And then you, you get to a point where with the financial crisis, that, that sort of blows that assumption up. And you recognize that, that, that there might be a better way of doing things. And now I, I, I definitely see a shift in regulators now trying to catalyze new fintech companies, uh, catalyzing expansion of the ecosystem, and, and really taking a more active role as opposed to being a bit of a, you know, simply a gatekeeper in the past. That's why I, like, I'd say that macro is, is one of the key drivers. If you talk about the regulation, in your opinion, or what, have you, what you've seen, is it the regulation that drives the change, or is it the change, or the, the innovation that drives the regulation? That, 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 that's, that's a wonderful, wonderfully astute question, because Regulators themselves are also not—they're not on an island. They're—they're they're in the globe. They're in the world. And so, you know, I've had conversations with regulators in Europe, for example, that might look at Asia or the U.S. for looking at use cases and user experiences. Uh, whereas I'll talk to regulators in, let's say, the U.S., and they will speak to some of the actions by European regulators about what they're doing well. So I, I think that there's a bit of a, a race to the top as opposed to a race to the bottom. Regulators are uh, taking more active role in terms of how to create and foster ecosystems that push forth the industry. You also talk about application. We shortly talked about that earlier, kind of um, what the technology is being used for. What have you seen there? Why is that a key driver? From an application perspective, I think one of the one of the things there is so for example think about media for a moment and one of the common behaviors I in globally and I, I've done this myself personally is like just binge watching streaming services as opposed to you know going to the movies as opposed to going to concerts so you have something that is you know you know, quite different. And, and, and in, in that context, you know, how, how do I think about buying something? How do I think about getting something? So, you, you know, for example, in, in a movie, I, I might buy some popcorn and a soda, 
Whereas if I'm streaming stuff at home, you know, I, I need to think about that beforehand. More, more likely than not, that, that will be shipped to my house as opposed to me going out uh, somewhere to get it. So I, I think that that's why, you know, the, the applications that uh, the consumer and, and businesses reside in is a, is a key driver in terms of how to inject financial services into that experience. That makes sense. Would you say that financial services is then to relate to your uh, metaphor there, it has become more on demand? Absolutely. It, it's definitely been more on demand. You look at things like, let's just say, t- take credit cards, for example. You know, credit cards used to have a single mode of operation. You know, you, you pay, or you, you purchase something and then it gets added up and then you pay some amount at the end of the month, uh, maybe carry some balance. But, but now you have credit cards that are in, in injecting different types of payment or lending mechanisms. So for example, if you, you know, I've, I've heard of some credit cards that like if you buy something above, a, like say a, a certain amount, like a thousand euros, you know, perhaps that gets put into a buy now, pay later bucket as opposed to a revolving credit bucket. That, that change is, is definitely impacting financial services as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then you talk about two other key drivers, technology as well as information. Can you talk us through those two as well? The, the biggest thing that I'd call out on as far as technology is, you know, thinking about the edge and what happens at the edge and edge being defined as, you know, let's say consumer or uh, end business user. With the dot-com era, it was predominantly just reading data res- and responding to data that gets sent uh, back and or, or organized there. And, and it's, it's a bit, bit of a more of a read mentality and, and and then going to when you have the mobile phone you know for example you can capture your location you could capture uh, barcodes you can capture uh, pictures and and so that then that gets sent back to the centralized system so a bit of re, um, read write and now uh, looking to the fintech era I, I, I fintech 2.0 era you know I, I'd say we're going towards an execute edge execution mentality where you know there, there will be data at the edges, be it from mobile devices, be it from IoT devices, you know, such as a car, such as a home, and so forth. That data will be able to be executed upon at, at the edge, as opposed to being needing to be sent back to a centralized system. That's uh, one of the technology implications. And then from the information perspective, um, and I, I think this is something that um, Europe has been you know leading the world in is in terms of, for example, you know, control and usage of data. And I, and I think that we're seeing waterfalls of that, for example, in the States, regulatory uh, initiatives to help users control their data or to try to make their data more portable. And, and, and similarly, it's, you know, I think the Asia as well, you know, regulators are starting to take a more active role in, in that perspective too. Very interesting. The conclusion that I draw from this is that technology, information, and application are more technology driven if you uh, if you will whereas macro environment is more human behavior driven in a way and of course then the economic disruption which i mean the pandemic we didn't really have control over but less technology driven so there's four clear elements of which one is more human led and then the other three are really technology led is that the right conclusion you know there's obviously a little bit of interplay but i i think i think as far as like thinking of where you know, the, the fountain from which a lot of these uh, ideas come from. I- then on the back of those kind of key drivers, you came up with the building blocks, right? For FinTech 2.0. Let's start with, so you have the A, B, C, D, E of the building blocks. Before we dive into each of those, how did you get to these? I mean, is this doing a lot of research, looking at a lot of data? Is this looking at a lot of companies or how, how do you get to 
kind of that these were are the building blocks. I, I think being at Money 2020, it, it, it's an interesting and unique perspective because from a global perspective, a lot of people, a lot of companies talk to us about what they're doing, talk to us about you know what's interesting to them and what they would like to talk about and engage the industry with. So and and you know th- these are like I said a lot of conversations that happen across the team. And so uh, you know we as a team also try to uh, aggregate all of that and to to help develop the signal and separate the signal from the noise also try to figure out uh, you know what 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 the trends are. Based on that like we we saw you know, for, for example, a lot of interest in uh, digital assets and CBDCs, and, and that, that sort of drove that, that first building block. N- next, looking at the pandemic, you know, we saw a lot of banks uh, really reassessing their technology stacks and their processes, and, and how can they do things better? How can they do things remotely? So that drove that next building block, the banking tech stacks. The, from the commerce experiences, I, I, I think that that's the easiest one to understand is, is just how much of an acceleration in digitization there's been and how much e- even brick and mortar and the interplay between digital and brick and mortar is, is really, has made a huge quantum leap forward over the last couple of years. Data is, is about, it's the underpinning of a lot of what happens and how to make the right decisions, how uh, for, from both the consumer as well as the financial institutions perspective. And, and so that, that, that's, I'd say that that's a very consistent building block, you know, for across all of the fintech eras. And then ecosystem, uh, because uh, you know, precisely as you called out, you know, the, the, there's an expansion of uh, companies that are traditionally not viewed as fintechs or financial services firms that are incorporating financial services into their value propositions. That's why the ecosystem will get bigger. So then talking about those predictions specifically, right? What's the prediction that you make for your A, your assets and your CBDCs over the next yeah. uh, couple of years? Yes. So I, I, I think that that's... One of the, um, I, I don't almost say like thinking about assets and CBDCs, even, you know, two years ago, it, it was, I, I described it a, a bit of a fringe topic and potentially something that I'd say most central bankers were a bit wary of. But, you know, my prediction is that within f- three years, five of the world's 10 largest economies will have central bank digital currencies or CBDCs in market. And it's it's a bit of a, a, a case where if, if one major economy does that, I think a lot of the other economies will need to follow suit. Otherwise, that has um, implications of potentially driving more volume uh, to a specific currency. Then if, if we go to um, thinking about banking technology stacks, you know, my prediction is that within three years, banking tech stacks will be predominantly cloud-based with, signif- with significant elements of core processing being open source based within five years. And, you know, I, I think that the, the driver in that is that, there, as I mentioned earlier, that, you know, there's going to be a lot more execution being done at, at, at the edges. And I think that that will um, sort of drive us away a bit from, you know, the, the standard mainframe centralized systems that, that we've relied upon for you know 50 60 years uh, on onto newer newer tech stacks and and then if we look at commerce experiences you know my prediction there is that within 5 years personalized cross platform digital algorithms or, or super agents will represent 20% of retail commerce transactions and and actually that that's uh, this is probably something that is 
furthest afield from what I think we're used to. Yeah, I guess that there's a, a couple of things here I want to call out. When I say super agent, a super agent will be um, beholden to the consumer as opposed to a large company. And it, it's a bit of a case where so much of the world runs on algorithms and these algorithms are controlled by other companies. I, I do think that um, there's a bit of a collective recognition that of how much the algorithms control us. And I think there's going to be a bit of a, okay, how do we control the algorithms so it's in our best interest? Um, like I said, this is probably one of the most out there uh, things, but uh, I, I actually, I, I do believe that this will happen. Just remind us now, what's, what's a super agent exactly? What do you mean by that? Yeah, so, so, so a super agent might be, so say for example, uh, you, 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 we have things like Alexa or uh, Google Assistant or you know th things that are uh, controlled by the respective companies that help us figure out what uh, you know what's good. And, but but in terms of the definition of what's good, the what's good is because of the ownership. It's defined as what is good for that uh, controlling company. It's not necessarily what's good for the consumer. Hmm. And 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 um, so I, I think that and I, I and this is also part of. A bit, goes a bit hand in hand with regulatory initiatives like open data, putting consumers in control of their data, putting uh, the next step would be, you know, putting consumers in greater control uh, and having more transparency around exactly what is that algorithm doing and how is it doing it. If it's in, if it's something that's c controlled by the consumer, there's greater likelihood of getting that transparency. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. because you talk about that good data as well in your data prediction, right? Exactly. Exactly. And, and yeah, the, the 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 good data. You know, we we think about operating systems like in the old days, like your desktop, like Windows, Mac, or Unix, and and looking at our mobiles like Android or iOS, and in the, that 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 is where all all of these apps reside on, and they're built upon data. And and I think up till now it's been a bit of like okay let's get as much data as possible that now we're at a point where there's so much data that's both good and bad and sometimes even stolen and potentially purchased on the dark web so there, it's not a question of getting that data it's a question of what which data is the best data to make a decision upon that's going to shift the power from you know traditional technology operating systems into data op data operating systems again maybe also driven by regulation data protection there's definitely data uh, some regulatory elements there but I, I there's going to be a recognition by so for example like lenders that yeah i i could buy data from a thousand pieces of data about you from let's say a bureau but if i'm able to get 10 pieces of data directly from the consumer that is that that might be more a better predictor of of the credit quality that might be a better predictor of whether or not a consumer will actually use that service. And, and that might be a better predictor of long-term cu customer value. And then your prediction on the ecosystem, what is that? I think um, Andreessen Horowitz uh, made a, made a uh, comment about how every company will be a fintech company. And I, I, I sort of, I, I don't necessarily believe that. So my prediction is that every company will not be a fintech company, but the ecosystem will expand dramatically as it becomes a more critical part of the economy. And uh, you know, sort of corollary of that is that within five years, fintech, fintech companies will be three of the most, three of the top 10 slots of the most valuable companies. 
And, you know, there's a bit of a, you know, history, looking at history, for example, 20 years ago, a lot of the most valuable companies were oil or fossil fuel based. And now they're big tech based and looking ahead, drilling down even within technology, fintech, I think is going to be a disproportionate driver of value, which will increase their valuation. Do you think, do you know, or do you have an idea or a prediction on who will have to step aside to... uh for those kind of free companies that will come into the top 10 that are now in the top 10? To be honest, I, I haven't looked at it from that perspective. Um, it, it's, it's, it's more sort of, um, I, I, I'd say that there's probably industries that are, you know, that, that tend to get a bit more commoditized and, and probably no longer driving value differentiation or value proposition uh, creation. And, 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 and so I, I think that potentially, I, you know, I, I, Areas that yeah, there's probably going to be a bit of aggregation and, and uh, acquisition. Yeah, of course, it's going to drive some of that. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I mean, maybe they outdo the ones that are already in there, right? I mean, exactly. Uh, exactly. You also see that the top ten is uh, significantly more valuable than it was ten years ago, and that has also uh, kicked out, uh, let's say, a few of the top ten companies that were in there ten years. But uh, I'm sure that in ten years there might be companies that are in there now that, due to well, it could be the macroeconomic economic environment, as you say, or technology. That will then uh, have them uh, make way for uh, for companies uh, within the fintech space. We started PCN 12 years ago with a view to serving the fintech community from a growth perspective. Since 2008, PCN has helped household names in fintech as well as the largest global merchants grow with the best talent who have specific financial technology experience. If you are a VC with a portfolio of fintech businesses, a scale-up looking to hire the best talent, or a merchant looking to hire a head of payments or an entire payments team. Get in touch today for a no-obligation consultation on how PCN can help you accomplish your hiring goals. Great, so you have predictions on the assets of central bank digital currencies, the banking technology stacks, the commerce experience, data, and the ecosystem. Which of those five do you think is the most likely? I think <laughs> that, I, you know, I, I, I'd say that, that I, I, you know, I'm, I'm obviously biased here in the sense that I think that all of those <laughs> will be the most likely. But uh, I, 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 I would say that the, the data element, I, 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 do, I, I do have a strong sense that... there. I think collectively, we're going to look at data in a very different way. I think the way that we've looked or started to look at data over the last year or so has already changed. Uh, imagine what will happen in the next three to five years. Uh, absolutely. And, and, and it's, it's sort of uh, even, you know, uh, thinking about things like podcasts, you know, this is an amazing ability to engage with a potentially very selective audience on a regular basis and like podcasting itself is, is just it, it, it's going to blossom and it, it's going to really change how we get information from from both the consumer as well as a business perspective yeah we only need a pandemic like this in order to change our behavior again significantly right so Absolutely. who knows what's going to come <laughs> uh, what would you say are the key takeaways when they read this, this 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 report what are the key things they should take away from from what you uh have written about. I think the most important thing is that, you know, we, we are entering a new era that will be a, a vastly changed world. And if you don't change with it, um, you'll likely be left behind. And a lot of the underlying assumptions in the industry will, will fall by the wayside. Um, so I, I, I do think that, you know, there's definitely um, 
a bit of getting the radar up, but also uh, self-awareness. You know, in, in in tandem with that, you know, I think that there's that we've had a collective disruption, and leaders and companies should be thinking about things boldly. For example, I, I was talking to a VC a few weeks ago uh, about uh, some startup, and 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 what they said was that you know even a few years ago we we would have looked and taken a look at this something that is that 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 says that they're going to change something in a huge way probably discounted that you know a few years ago whereas now we're like actually that can happen and so these bold types of ideas i think are getting much more attention than they have in the past and as leaders you know you, you want to be part of that change as opposed to reacting to it be bold yes basically. exactly yeah you might be able to talk more about this on the uh, Money 2020 event that is coming up. What 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 can we expect? I mean, it's going to be in, in Amsterdam the 21st to the 23rd of September. What can we expect? Is it going to be bigger, better than last year? Or yeah, any sneak peek that you can give us? <laughs> yeah, no, I I, I I think that it's sort of interesting that you know uh, up till now Money 2020 has been about look looking at disruptive change, and up till now disruptive change has been. Uh, taking something that has been in person and making it digital. This year, it's it's a bit of a flip of that. You know, we've been living digital lives, and digital uh, conferences, digital webinars, and so forth, and we're going to make that in person. So, I, ironically, the, the the biggest disruption is that it will be in person. I think that what what that does is that, I, and, and I'm, I'm sure you've heard this as well too. But there there is such a a thirst for reconnecting with people. There is such a desire to you know hear about things you know directly from people and when i am talking to someone in person I, i'm you know, more likely to be able to share things than if i'm doing something on let's just say a webinar or zoom you know that it, it, there's probably a little bit more of a reticence to talk about things so i, th- I think that there's gonna be a lot of amazing conversations and and what we've done with the agenda is really um we we, we, we f- followed that trend and, and rather than trying to look at an incremental improvement of last year's agenda. We're we're looking at what is the world going to be, you know, a few years out, let's just say five years out. And then if the world is going to be like that, what do we need in place? And so it's a bit of what do we need in place and then helping create that bridge of fostering the conversations that help us to get from here to there. I don't want to get too abstract, but it's it's, it's a bit of like uh, trying to present the vision and then uh, really having concrete conversations about yeah, how we get there. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I can't wait to uh, be building those bridges again. Uh, also to uh, look beyond that, the, the bridges of relationships to, like you said, see people face-to-face, have conversations face-to-face, talk about the industry, the developments that are going on, maybe record a podcast face-to-face would be nice as well. Uh, so very much uh, looking forward to it. That's for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, we'd, lo- we'd love to have you there. <laughs> <Doing a podcast. laughs> I will be there. Don't you worry. Great, Sajid. Well, thanks for, for being on the show. Thanks for yeah talking about the report. We talked about it, of course, in a high level. If people want to find out more, if people want to read the report itself, where should they go? Where can they find it? Yeah, so, so they, they can uh, go to the Money 2020 website. There's a section on there about content and as well as specifically the white paper. Uh, obviously, if you're interested in the Europe event, you know, there's a Europe event section as well, too, that'll have more details 
than I can cover in you know a few minutes here. Thanks again, uh, Sanjeev, and thanks everyone for tuning in to another episode of uh, In Check with FinTech. I hope to see you all in uh, Amsterdam at the Money 2020. But if you're not there, or if you're just curious what's going to be uh, uh, on the show next week, don't forget to tune in. Don't forget to like and subscribe to the uh, podcast if you've not done so already. See each other soon. Thank you. Thanks for listening, and we'd like to leave you with a more serious message from our partner Free a Girl, who are dedicated to founding child prostitution and impunity all over the world. Hi, I'm Evelyn, CEO and founder of Free a Girl. Every day, two million children, especially girls, are being held captive worldwide. They are locked up and exploited in brothels, dance bars, or online, forced into sexual exploitation. Their freedom is taken away together with their youth, family and future. We are dedicated to fight sexual exploitation of children by rescuing these girls. Please join us, unlock their freedom and unlock your potential by becoming a business partner. Please visit freegirl.com for more information. Thank you.